The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations from listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely online at kopn.org. Thank you. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And I am delighted today to welcome my guest, Mr. Michael O'Donnell. He is the Farm Certification Manager at Living Prairie Family Farms based in Wolcott, Indiana. It's a large-scale, diversified organic grain farming operation. He is also the Regenerative Agriculture Coordinator for the Diverse Corn Belt Project in the Department of Horticulture and Landscape Architecture at Purdue University. That is a USDA-funded multidisciplinary project to bring together agricultural stakeholders to explore how a more diversified agricultural system in the Midwest could be more resilient and sustainable than the current corn and soybean-dominated system we have now. Mr. O'Donnell is also the owner of Recovery Agriculture, LLC, which offers agricultural consulting services to farmers and organizations who want to transition to regenerative and organic farming systems. He has a BS in Mechanical Engineering from Purdue University and an MS in Mechanical Engineering from the University of Texas at Austin. Welcome, Michael. Thank you. It's so good to have you. I'm familiar with a publication in which you are co-author that has to do with pesticide drift. And we're going to talk about some agricultural challenges that we've both experienced where we live. But first, I have to ask you, you've got degrees in mechanical engineering. How on earth did you become interested and involved in agriculture? Yeah, that's a, it's a question I often get. You mentioned I, I did my undergraduate studies at Purdue University. I worked in the engineering industry for a while, but then decided to pursue graduate studies, which took me down to Texas. And at that time, I was on a project, an EPA-funded project for my thesis work, and it had me looking at biofuels. So at that time, it was when Congress had passed what was called the Renewable Fuel Standard, which mandated an increase in the volume of biofuels in our transportation system, things like ethanol and biodiesel. I was doing kind of a historical policy analysis and infrastructure analysis of previous transitions in our fuel system, and then also doing life cycle analysis of different biofuels, looking at impacts of the production of biofuels compared to conventional fossil-derived fuels. And as I was studying this, I had to better understand conventional corn and soybean production being the feedstocks for corn ethanol and soy biodiesel. And it really had me asking a lot of questions from a sustainability lens about the overall sustainability of just the production of corn and soybean and whether that made sense as a substitute for fossil drive fuels and the implications of those kinds of decisions. And from that, just learning about agriculture, I became fascinated because I was never really exposed to it prior to that in my life. And, you know, I'm nearing my mid-20s at this point, and I just dove in and started to learn as much about agriculture as I could. I started working as a volunteer at a 
certified organic vegetable operation in Austin, Texas, and it just went from there. I, I finished my studies there, finished my master's degree in engineering, but made the decision to continue pursuing my interest in agriculture and never looked back. Well, I have to go back and ask you about the biofuel issue, because we're facing such a crisis with climate and fuels and now the war in Eastern Europe. And I wonder, what are your thoughts about biofuels? Are they a good idea? Well, I think that there's still potential with biomass-derived energy resources. But this all-in putting all our cards or putting so much the emphasis, which results in investments and infrastructure development behind corn-based ethanol being the primary biofuel that we have as a substitute or a blend in our gasoline for transportation, I think is concerning. And if you look at the research showing some of the outcomes, how our agriculture has evolved since the RFS was put into place and mandated ethanol use increased, we can see the implications of that policy change in terms of overall landscape change, Mm. more acres in corn production specifically for ethanol, and a lot of the impacts of that landscape level change. So I haven't spent time studying biofuels much further beyond that work in graduate school. Sure. Uh, I decided to focus more on farming and alternative and sustainable and organic farming systems. So I haven't stayed up in the world of biofuels, but I think there's a lot of research uh, in the peer-reviewed literature to suggest that this major focus on corn-based ethanol as a major biofuel here in the United States has problems. Yeah, I've read concerning articles as well. And as a dietitian, you know, I look at it as, okay, what do we need to be eating? What are we growing? And if my numbers are correct, I think the last figure I saw was that 40% of the corn crop was going towards ethanol. And yet, from a nutritional perspective, what I see missing from the diet is that we need many more of what we call specialty crops, fruits and vegetables, and less of the corn and soy going to both animal feed as well as the fuel market. But that's just my perspective. You may have additional thoughts. Oh, I agree that we need to see more diversification in our agricultural landscape for a variety of reasons, but as you say, provide people with access to more diverse and healthy food options, particularly fresh produce. But there's a lot of pieces that go into that beyond just the production aspect, but also access and people's knowledge of how to work with a more varied kitchen, right? Right. (laughs) A more varied diet uh, and how to incorporate that into people's daily lives of consuming a better diet. So all the way from, from the farm level production up to how people work with different foods in their kitchen and incorporate them into their lifestyle. There's a lot there. But I agree at the farm level and in the agricultural landscape, having space for more diverse crops, particularly horticultural and human food crops, I think is very important. Well, I thought it was interesting that you are helping farmers transition away from the corn and soybean-dominated system In addition to the fact that it's not biodiverse enough, and we know that true regenerative and sustainable agriculture systems are really based on biodiversity, both soil life as well as plant life, I'm curious to know why 
most of the farmers who reach out to you are wanting to make a switch out of that system? Well, a lot of my work in working with farmers who are looking to transition to new systems of production from conventional corn and soybean was in a previous role that I had with Purdue Extension as a statewide organic agriculture educator. And so in that case, I served as a resource within the state of Indiana to develop educational programs focused on organic agriculture production. And much of that was focused on field crops, which are things like grain and oil seed. And I also served as a contact for farmers to get more information. And so many of the farmers I spoke with worked with conventional corn and soybean farmers looking to transition into certified organic production. Oftentimes, this was transitioning to still do grains and oil seeds, corn and soybean, but also adding other crops because under organic management systems, trying to produce just corn and soybeans becomes problematic and not really sustainable. You run into problems with pest and weed management, nutrient management, uh, and soil health trying to just produce those two summer annual row crops. So we look at more diversified production systems, more diverse crop rotations to incorporate small grains like wheat, barley, oats, cereal rye, and other crops like sunflowers, peas, buckwheat, adding diverse cover crops and hay and pasture in rotation with grazing animals on the landscape. So still maybe producing corn and soybeans because there's a lot of demand for organic corn and soybeans to raise organic poultry and feed dairy cows and lane hens. So there's still a lot of demand for organic corn and soybeans, but typically in those systems, we're looking at much more diverse cropping systems. Listening to you talk, I'm thinking of the word coexistence, this idea that Oh, sure. You know, there's room for all kinds of agriculture. We want the conventional systems to operate next to the organic ones. But what I've learned is that really coexistence is impossible when you have farming systems that use herbicides and an increasing number of herbicides as weeds develop resistance, where those herbicides drift. And they may drift onto an organic soy and corn operation, or they may drift on an organic specialty crop farm. And by specialty crops, that embraces nuts and fruit trees and vegetables, you know, the kinds of foods that I recommend that consumers eat more of. So I'm just wondering if you can talk about that concept of coexistence and what you've seen in the field. Can they coexist? Well, I, I guess I would clarify on coexistence is it's not just conventional production causing problems on organic grain or specialty crop production, but this can impact any farm-to-farm type of production, whether it's conventional fruits and vegetables, right? They could be damaged by some of the pesticides used on conventional grain operations. Or now, as we've seen, you mentioned herbicide resistance, and there's more technologies to try to manage this and delay or slow the continued development of herbicide-resistant weeds is that we have new technologies with different herbicide resistance traits that are causing grain-to-grain, conventional grain-to-grain farm coexistence problems, where a perfect example is the newer dicamba-resistant soybean technologies, where we've seen just a deluge of drift damage issues across the soybean-producing states, where a farm that's chosen to adopt that CAMBA-resistant soybean technology causing drift onto neighboring grain farms, soybean farms, 
that have chosen not to adopt those technologies and therefore their soybeans are not resistant to dicamba and can be damaged. So this coexistence issue impacts all farms, regardless of their production system or crops that they produce. But it is a particular concern to certified organic operations that can't use these synthetic inputs and of concern to those specialty crop growers whose crops are highly sensitive to a range of herbicides and may not be able to be sold if they're contaminated with other types of, of pesticides yeah. that they're not labeled for. So this coexistence issue, it affects all of agriculture. Mm-hmm. Let me take one break and just remind our listeners that if you are just joining us, you are tuned into Food Sleuth Radio, and we are speaking with Mr. Michael O'Donnell. He is the Farm Certification Manager at Living Prairie Family Farms in Wolcott, Indiana. He's also the Regenerative Agriculture Coordinator for the Diverse Corn Belt Project in the Department of Horticulture and Landscape Architecture at Purdue University. And we are talking about Mr. O'Donnell's experience, both working through Purdue Extension and some of the issues that he saw there, as well as his own experience on the farm in the Midwest. So from my perspective, if COVID taught us nothing, it was that we needed certainly more resilience in our agriculture systems. We needed more regionalized systems because when supply systems break down for any number of reasons, then we see food supply shortages. And what I thought was so interesting nationally is that during COVID, supermarkets may have had empty shelves, but the farmers' markets were thriving because there was a local food system that was responding to increased demand, and farmers did very well in a local community. But what I see happening at my market and to the farmers that I speak with is that they do suffer from drift. And I've actually had some farm friends who can no longer farm or at least produce the kinds of crops and the quantity that they were able to sell prior to having a drift incident. And I'm thinking of a farmer in particular in Iowa who I interviewed, Rob Fox, who was growing peppers for his community. And I love a good red pepper. They're loaded with vitamin A, vitamin C. When they're fresh, they are fabulous. But he was a victim of drift from neighboring farms using, again, he was in the Midwest, so there was the corn and soy rotation. There was lots of herbicide spraying going on. And he suffered from drift to the point where he can no longer produce foods in the quantity that he could and gain that economic benefit because of drift incidents. And I know that you've experienced drift as a farmer yourself. Do you want to tell our listeners a little bit about your own experience? Sure, yeah. So my family and I had our own small farming operation from about 2012 through 2019. It started in 2012. Not We weren't really doing commercial sales in 2012. We were kind of getting ourselves established, getting our growing space set up, working with our soil, getting infrastructure like, you know, the area that we would wash and pack produce and store equipment and supplies, getting that fixed up and prepared and and just figuring out exactly what direction we wanted to go with our farm. But we were growing. And then we developed into a small commercial vegetable operation, what I refer to as market farming. We raised vegetables year-round on a half acre of ground. It doesn't sound like much, but you manage it intensively and have really intensive crop rotation and growing in high tunnels to be able to produce and harvest crops in the fall and the winter. And it keeps you quite busy and you can produce quite a bit of food on, on a half acre. 
We also raised uh, pasture-raised poultry and laying hens, so we have chicken and eggs also to sell to our customers. It's mostly direct retail through farmer's market, uh, local independent grocer, and a little bit with restaurants. So we were like the farmer that you mentioned in Iowa. We were mostly surrounded by corn and soybean production. And But actually, the first year when we were getting things set up, our first experience with thrift was in 2012. We were actually surrounded by pumpkins, commercial ornamental pumpkins. And that was an interesting experience where we were kind of learning the environment and what was going on around us. But with the pumpkins, those were sprayed once they started setting and developing fruit every week, just about on the dime. At dusk, once honeybees, which pollinate the crop, would go up into their hives, and they would spray some kind of combination of fungicides and or insecticides to try to protect this crop from foliar disease and insect damage. And so we, we had to essentially endure these pesticide applications every week for about a seven or eight week period until that pumpkin crop was ready for harvest. And the nature of that crop and the timing in the evenings, the whole area would essentially be bombed out with these pesticides. And we would just, on those evenings, plan to put our our two sons into the house, close the house up, and just not be outside for that evening. So it was a pretty unpleasant experience. I mean, just our ability to be out and operate on our own farm without being exposed to this stuff each week for one weekday evening each week for seven or eight weeks was pretty disruptive to our life, Mm. Um, let alone any other potential impacts and whether the the residues of these were ended up on our crops. Right. So then it kind of went from there. From there on out, we're always surrounded by corn or soybeans. Uh, We experienced some damage from glyphosate from a what's called a burn-down application. It's applied as a soil-applied herbicide application prior to the crop being planted to clean up the field, kill the weeds that are there. I worked directly with the applicator in that case, and they filed a claim with their insurance provider, and and we got a a payment for the damages that we estimated to our crop. Then, I think in 2015, we experienced damage again from a burn-down application, and at that point, we decided that we, we needed to get a third party involved. So we filed a complaint with the agency that deals with pesticide regulations here in the state of Indiana called the Office of Indiana State Chemist. And they investigated this and found that the applicator was in violation based on their herbicide application they made and the damage that resulted on our crops. But the applicator was issued a warning. Mm-hmm. The the compliance officer, I, I looked, at, I reacquainted myself with that report, and the, the compliance officer stated that consideration was given to the fact that this was the applicator's first violation of similar nature. So I guess since the first time that this applicator had caused pesticide damage like this, or at least someone had reported and reported it, they decided that they'd just issue a warning. You know, and it kind of, it just sort of elevated from there. In 2016, we experienced drift from two different applicators that surrounded us on the exact same afternoon. We filed a complaint with the state chemist office again, and both applicators were found to be in violation. But once again, (laughs) both applicators were issued a warning. There was no other citation, no fine or anything. And in this case, the compliance officer stated that consideration was given to the fact that there was a good faith effort to comply. To this day, I'm not quite sure what that means, Yeah. Uh, particularly particularly in the case of the applicator who this was the second year in a row causing us damage to our crops. 
it kind of went from there. We experienced drift again in 2018, again in 2019. I think in 2018, they couldn't attribute it to any applicator and said it was likely atmosphere deposition of 2,4-D, so essentially background levels of 2,4-D that impacted our crops. Um, And again, in 2019 was a third applicator that caused damage to our crops, and, and that applicator was given a warning as well. So it caused a lot of stress and anxiety for me and my family at the time, you know, every year during the springtime when it'd be, you know, when farmers would start doing burn down herbicide applications and later in the season with post, what's called post-emergence herbicide applications once the crop is established, we would just have a lot of anxiety. Anytime we'd see a sprayer or, or hear a sprayer going down the road or see one pulling into a nearby field, we would just really elevated our anxiety fearing that we were going to go through the same thing again, Groundhog's Day, and anticipating damage. I would become hyper-focused on wind speed and wind direction and temperature. Is there a temperature inversion? And just became hypersensitized to it. And, and in my work at the time with extension traveling around the state, I started to become very uh, attuned to seeing drift damage in the landscape, whether it's to crops or trees or landscape gardens and just starting to see that it's it is quite a common occurrence and in our case when we tried to assert ourselves or stand up for ourselves within our community it became a major source of stress to us um, and was not received well by the applicators or the farmers that were causing this problem and it, it was a very stressful time for me and my family. Yeah. And I'm going to assume that you are no longer farming that half acre that was very productive. Yeah, that farm business we put to bed in around 2019, 2020. I'm sure your customers were very disappointed. Oh, yeah. Yeah. When we stopped going to the farmer's market and then stopped doing on-farm sales, we had several customers that you know were longtime customers of ours, and they came to rely on us for their source of fresh High quality, organically produced. We didn't. We weren't certified organic, but used organic practices, and they they were so happy to have a farm like this in their area, within their community, that they could rely on and have a relationship with. And to have that go away, they were quite disappointed and, and saddened by that. The reason for ending the farm is not fully attributable to the drift issue, but I can tell you that that was a major factor in our decision. Right. Well, from my perspective, you know, someone who works in public health, it's a real shame because this is the kind of food that I am encouraging people to seek. And if our farming community cannot produce the kinds of foods that every single health organization recommends that we eat more of, and especially when we think about, okay, let's re-regionalize our food system, the fact that you as a farmer could not make it because of these challenges raises a big red flag for me. And it's really why I wanted you to be my guest to help people understand the challenges that producers face when trying to bring to market the kinds of foods that we have certainly seen a much greater demand for. Sure. Yeah. You know, and that made me think one of the things that really is ironic is that one of the applicators that caused drift on our crop, drift damage on our small farm, was actually a specialty crop producer themselves and have faced problems of drift on larger scale specialty crop production. So the, the irony was never lost on me in that, in that situation. Right. Uh, but it does present challenges. And 
when, for example, I mentioned the dicamba tolerant or dicamba resistant soybean technologies that were introduced a few years ago that have caused, you know, a deluge of drift problems and a lot of these pesticide agencies in different states just being inundated with investigations. You know, some of the specialty crop companies and farmer organizations stood up and tried to raise awareness and concern about the adoption and approval or the approval of these technologies and tried to push back on that because of their because of exactly this concern that the adoption of this type of technology would threaten the viability of their specialty crop industries. Yeah. Well, you know, Michael, we are out of time. And so what I am going to do is I'm going to provide a link to an excellent guide sheet that you wrote with your colleagues at Purdue through extension called Options for Dealing with Pesticide Drift Incidents. And we understand that every state is different in how they handle these kinds of drift incidents, but this is a good basis for at least knowing what can be done universally. And first and foremost, it's a help in understanding what to look for in terms of drift damage. Do you want to end this program with one last piece of information or one last observation that you want to make sure our listeners know? I would. You know, people who listen to the story probably think I might be bitter, hold resentments about these drift incidents that I experienced and some of the stress and emotional strain and financial losses that we experienced with our small farm. But, you know, at this point, I don't hold resentments towards the farmers that did this or do this. I've long since worked through that internally. But I don't condone, I don't condone pesticide drift by any means, and I, and I don't feel that it's an appropriate cost or externality of our current agricultural system, given how it can impact other farmers, rural residents, and, and natural areas and ecosystems. I just feel that drift, pesticide drift, is more or less another symptom or externality of our current agricultural system. It results in, I mean, if we just look at the, the burden of investigations on these pesticide, these state pesticide agencies and employee time and sampling materials and lab analysis to investigate drift incidents, particularly with the spike in dicamba drift incidents, you know, the taxpayer is on the hook for this right. because it's state agencies that conduct these investigations. But, you know, farmers are in working within a system or paradigm that to them is is normal. They, they grew up in it. It's what they know. And it's very difficult to change. And, and that's one of the reasons why I don't lay the blame 100% directly at the feet of the farmers, simply because of you know the system they're operating in. We have a what's become a very simplified agricultural landscape. It's managed very efficiently, in quotes, I, I, I say. And there's a lot of what you could call simplification or reinforcing factors that result in a sort of lock-in of this simplified system of production. And it really limits the ability of farms to diversify things like our crop insurance system, ag lending practices, our research and extension system that really focuses on supporting, you know, the research dollars devoted to focusing on, for example, corn and soybean production systems. Right. And we have simplified markets and infrastructure. So trying to diversify out of this system and reduce our reliance on things like herbicides and other pesticides that result in drift can be very challenging for farmers. And it's uncertain and has risks. And I've learned a lot from the perspective of farmers operating on large acreage in our current agricultural 
paradigm. So with all that said, I think there's a lot we can do to support farmers in transitioning to more diversified systems. I know that we can't get into that right now. No, we've Um, got to close, unfortunately. I want to thank our listeners for joining us. Remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn for KOPN Studios in Columbia, Missouri. Most of all, I want to thank my guest, Mr. Michael O'Donnell, Farm Certification Manager at Living Prairie Family Farms in Wolcott, Indiana. Thank you so much for your time today, Michael. Thank you.